0: Today we're going to be talking about the topic of marriage and divorce and singleness. Uh, and this is something that is uh, very close to all of us, right? Because all of us are probably either single or married. Some of us have experienced divorce firsthand, perhaps secondhand. This is something that, like last week when we discussed gender and sexuality, is really probably not even one degree of separation. I've been having some good conversations with some, some folks about um, The topic last week and gender and sexuality and just how relevant this is for us in our culture and also um, how controversial it can be and so i just want to preface that as by way of a disclaimer that i understand this is going to be a bit controversial i understand it's going to be a bit emotional and perhaps perturbing but i think it's important for us in this series not only in the topic today but in the series as a whole to recapture and redefine what it truly means to be a Christian according to Jesus, according to the scriptures. Because for so long, the American Christian culture has really hijacked what it means to be a Christian. And it's duped nearly everyone. Often it's referred to as easy believism, which essentially is a version, there are many versions, but essentially it's a version of Christianity that says, hey, believe that Jesus rose from the dead and you will be saved from your sins and you get heaven and a buffet there and you never have to gain weight and whatever the version of heaven is that you get painted you get that and then life pretty much is however you want it from there it's still just your life that's actually a lie it's not the Christian faith it's not the the version of following Jesus that he talked about when he walked the earth and so I think it's important as we go through this series and obviously as we read the Bible as a whole that we try to recapture and redefine and perhaps even deconstruct, as Chris talked about earlier, some of what we think it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as we discussed in the introduction, a Christian and a disciple are the exact same thing, the exact same person. They are synonymous in the scriptures. And so if you're just coming and this is maybe your first time or you're just starting, we're really grateful to have you and you are welcomed part of this family And just know that you are walking into a family just like everybody else's family is kind of jacked up. we got some warts, some crazy cousins, you know. The weird uncle actually gets up and speaks most Sundays. It's just a crazy family, okay? But thank you for being here. We want to be authentic. We want to be genuine. And we want to be reliant on the love of God. And I'm so grateful for the worship team and all the AV and uh, the, the usher teams, all the things that you guys do to help us be able to experience God together. Thank you for that. It was so cool getting to see all the women up here today. Uh, predominantly female-led, uh, you know, um, worship experience this morning. It's really, really cool. Uh, that last song was amazing. I had never, I never heard that iteration. That was really good. Y'all going to start making me get all weepy and emotional before I come preach. I got to start vetting which song happens right before I speak. No, I can't, can't go there. So this is kind of the outline of the series. This is where we've been. This is where we're at. This is where we're going, Okay. Um, I wanted to talk for a minute just a brief minute if I can interact with you because you guys know I'm all about participation and not just spectation. what are some things that you think about some possible questions or maybe even hot button topics when it comes to the idea of singleness marriage and divorce in regards to the Christian faith and the Bible what are some questions you have some possible hot topics yes Does God want me to remain single for the rest of my life or to get married at some point, right? Coming from a young man. Yes. What else? It's a good question. Has anybody else ever wondered that question at some point in their life? Okay, good. We got a few people that are willing to be honest. Amen. What else? Yes. Okay. Okay. So all the, all the parameters and nuances of how to understand divorce in the scriptures. Yes. Yeah, yes, ma'am. Yes. Did you raise your hand? Yeah, that, was question. that was your question. He stole it. Okay, so issues around divorce. How do we understand divorce from the point of the scriptures and the view of God? What about remarriage, et cetera? Yes. And obviously, if you've been around Christian culture for a while, you'll notice that every church has a little different view on that, right? And different practice. Not every church, but there are multiple types of different practices with that. Yeah, back, Dave. Dave. Okay so, the, okay, so the issues of the sacrament and holiness, the, the divinity of marriage. Is marriage really a construct of God or is it a construct of man and where those lines overlap and intersect? Yes. What does dating really look like? Oh, Lord Jesus. That's my next series, okay? I probably won't touch on that too much here. That's a great question, though. What does dating look like? Close your eyes. <laughs> it looks better. Uh, there was a hand back here yes ma'am can I lead as a single woman lead what life I'm gonna lead life great question probably again outside the scope of today's sermon though okay 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 so you're talking about in the Christian culture or you're talking about in the secular culture in Christian culture there can be, I'm just repeating all of this for the, for the feed and, and for you guys. So in the Christian culture there can often be a dynamic where being single is kind of like second rate, like second class Christian citizen. Yes? Okay. Okay. Okay, so the role of the male and female inside of marriage. Okay, yeah, because obviously men love that passage, right? In Ephesians 5, it says, women, submit to your husbands, right? That's our favorite passage in the Bible. No, okay, just kidding. It's the one right after that that says, love your wives as Christ. Oh, dang it, I hate that verse. (laughs) Paul, why couldn't you have just stopped right at that first one? All right, yeah. Is it okay for Christians to date and marry non-Christians? Okay, great. Thank you. We're going to stop there. I know that there's probably many other questions that we could get to. Today, I'm going to try to narrow my focus. Obviously, we just covered a lot of different topics that are kind of intertwined together. Today, I'm just going to talk about the topics of marriage, divorce, and singleness. And guess what? I'm going to do a really incomplete and non-thorough job of every single one of them, okay? So please just know that by way of disclaimer again, Matthew 19. Matthew 19, you know, I heard Andy Stanley say once, if you know, he leads a really big church in Atlanta. Uh, I heard him say this once and it it really resonated with me. Um, He said, you know, every year I challenge myself to preach Matthew 19 and what Jesus said about divorce just to make sure I've still got the guts to say it. And he leads a church of like 80 gajillion people. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure if there's anybody that's trying to walk a tightrope, it would be somebody in that position. Luckily for me, you know, if I offend a few people, my life will go on. Um, And maybe that's not how he thinks. That's how I would think if I were in his shoes. But I appreciated his candor and also his courage. His willingness to say, hey, you know, and I'm, I'm obviously not necessarily in alignment with Andy Stanley on a great many number of things. But I appreciated his courage. And the call as not only a preacher, but every disciple is do I still have the guts to follow Jesus, to stand up for what he stands up for, even when it's not popular. Matthew 19 and verse 1. I'll pick it up in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Oh, that's always a bad idea. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Guess what? They had questions just like we do. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Okay, so let me pause for a minute and just give a little little context, a little background here. What's going on? They didn't like Jesus' first answer. So they asked him a different question. And the question's a bit obtuse for us because we don't understand necessarily the, the context of Moses and what was going on in the days of the Jewish people when Jesus was here. For a long time, the Jews had had a tradition presumed to be traced all the way back to Moses himself That if a man wanted to get divorced because women in their culture were essentially second class, they were less important and certainly had less rights and value than a male. If a man wanted to divorce his wife, pretty much for any reason, he had a formal legal way in which to do so. He could rid himself of her. Now, obviously, this was very detrimental and damaging to the woman because when she is divorced... And sent away from her man as now a single woman, she has very little prospects and opportunity to even provide for herself in the culture of that day. And there are still cultures on the planet today that operate very similarly. They didn't like his first answer, but I'll get back to that in a minute. So they ask him another question. Why then did Moses say that we can do this? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. I don't think they like that answer either. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. So now the disciples, the followers of Jesus, are now interpreting Jesus' response to the Pharisees, which they don't like. And now they're basically like, We don't really like it either. That's crazy. The disciples are like, if that's the case, then forget marriage altogether. Jesus says, Not everyone can accept this word. Really? You think, Jesus? But only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. I'm telling y'all, I don't know what I'm doing trying to squeeze this into one sermon. This literally could be an entire series. I could do multiple sermons on just this passage. And so again, by way of disclaimer, please know that this is just an overview, a high flyover, um, which is challenging because I, I feel like I, there, there's so much here that's, that's worthy to talk about and to really wrestle with because Jesus says some things here that are challenging to both sides of the camp. He says stuff that challenges the people who are trying to trap him. And he says in the very same things, stuff that challenges those that are following him. Jesus had no regard to people other than the truth and to love God and to lead them in that. But he didn't care if you were with him or you were against him. He was going to speak the truth. And so in verse 4 here, I'll just pick a few verses here to highlight a few concepts. In verse 4, he says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? This again harkens back to last week or two weeks ago when I spoke about gender and sexuality, that the very beginning of the Bible tells the narrative of this creator God and that he creates both gender and sexuality. And he creates gender as binary. And he creates sexuality as very good between one man and one woman. And then obviously, in the very beginning of that narrative, we see that humans decide with the help of this evil serpent creature thing, they decide that they want to define good and evil for themselves. They don't really like God's creative intent and definitions of gender and sexuality or anything else. And so they usurp God's authority to take it for themselves. And it's one long downward spiral after that, right up until right now, present day. Here we are still with the choice to eat from that tree and define good and evil, to define morality and even reality itself for ourselves or to submit ourselves to a creator who defines those things for us. It is always and forever the choice between every human being is to define or to choose whether they're gonna define life for themselves or embrace the creator's definition. And of course, this is incredibly difficult and controversial today, especially when it comes to gender and sexuality. We believe in our culture that if something feels good, then it must be true and it must be right. And if it doesn't feel good, then it must be not true and not right. And as we discussed prior in another sermon in this series about true love, we know that that definition of love and right and wrong is not true scripturally. But if we're honest with ourselves, we can actually know that it's not true experientially as well. We've all experienced trying to live life based on how we feel. If it feels good, it must be good. If it feels bad, it must be bad. Do that for a little while and then tell me what you find. We know it's not true just based on our experience but it's a hard lie to let go of. We've been fed this lie of hyper-individualism and autonomy in our culture. We value the self. We have all kinds of cliches and cultural norms to express this, that we can decide our own destiny, what direction to go, what's true, what's right. And more times than not, what's it based on? Our own feelings, our own emotions, our own perception, our own self. We are God. That's the lie that we're sold every day. We've been fed this lie from relativism as well. That truth is relative. There's no absolute truth. Whatever's true for you is true for you, and whatever's true for me is true for me. Like Lecrae said, but what if my truth says that your truth is a lie? Man, you're killing yourself. I love that line. It's so easy to perceive logically, but so difficult to discern experientially. Why? Well, the Bible's explanation for why is because we all took from that tree. And we all continue to desire that tree. We want to be autonomous. We want to be God. We want to be the rulers of self. We don't want a creator. We want to be the creator. Some of these cliches that we have that sort of expose this kind of false worldview, things like, well, I've got to speak my truth. I love that episode of The Office, you know, for any of my Office fans out there. You know, Pam and Jim go to marriage counseling and this is the therapist's counsel and direction for them to learn how to work through their problems what do they start saying to each other well if I'm to speak my truth Jim and it's a funny scene and it's a funny episode but it's actually very telling too it's telling about the worldview that pervades the world that we live in that's embraced without thought without consideration as true and what is that that my individual personal truth is true that is in conflict with the biblical worldview. God alone defines truth, not us. So the whole idea of to say or speak my truth, while it might be funny on a sitcom-type episode, in reality, if we embrace that and live that way, we are living counter to God. We are departing from Jesus and not being his disciple. Perhaps the mantra like, I must be true to my authentic self, Or I must be my authentic self. What authentic self is that exactly? Whatever version you and I want to paint that day, just give us some finger paint and we'll paint our authentic selves. Who defines authenticity? Do you see the worldviews that I'm pitting against one another right now? Why? Because they are in conflict with each other. They are in competition for you and I. There is a worldview and a faith of God as the creator and definer of all reality or There is me. We get to choose. And this goes back to the very beginning of the Bible story. Genesis 3. Genesis 1 and 2, God, there's a creator, he creates all things. Genesis 3, no thanks, we're good, God. I think that really the lie that we wrestle with all the time about I've got to be my authentic self Connect it to where we're headed. Marriage, divorce, singleness. I've got to be my true self, my authentic self. It's actually the same exact lie that the serpent tells Eve in Genesis 3. What did the serpent say to Eve? What was the first lie? That was Eve. Did God really? Yeah, the serpent says, did God really say? And he says, he, so he tests Eve about <laughs> memory, apparently, or something, drawing, drawing into question the, the character and nature of this creator God. But what's the first lie that he says? He says, if you eat this, you will be like God. That was the lie that we all bought. Is that if we have this autonomy, if we have this ability to discern good from evil, if we have the ability to define morality and, and reality itself, we get to be like God. And you know what? In some sense, it's kind of true because we do get to kind of, in a sense, at least in an illusory kind of way, we get to define what we're going to do and where we're going to be. And yet, it just falls down into this spiral of death and chaos and bitterness and humans hurting each other From Genesis 3 on, the biblical narrative of what people do is really bad on the whole. And so this idea of being my true self, being my authentic self, we're right back in the garden in Genesis 3 with the serpent every time we think that, deciding which reality am I going to embrace and believe. So whether we're talking about gender and sexuality, whether we're talking about marriage, singleness, and divorce, whether we're talking about the nature of truth or even reality itself, It's all the same premise scripturally. We are not the creator, it says. Instead, we're supposed to submit ourselves and embrace the creative intent of the creator who is also a loving father. So, Jesus says here in this attempt to trap him about marriage, which I have felt sometimes too. John, what what exactly are the parameters in which I can get a divorce? You're trying to trap me, aren't you? Jesus was there in verse six. He says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that, that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. What's he saying right there? That was not God's creative intent. Divorce is not God's creative intent. Does it happen? Yes. Is God gracious and forgiving? Yes. Does he want it to happen? No. Did he design it to happen? No. But when we eat from that tree, that and all kinds of things like it happen. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another woman commits adultery. Divorce is not a part of God's creative intent. However, it does happen. And this is not meant in any way in this section to shame or guilt anyone. I come from a long line of divorce myself. My parents divorced when I was two. Both of them have been divorced again since. Some of them are now deceased. One of the things that I talked to Britt about in our premarital counseling was how terrified I was of divorce. That I knew that left to myself, that was going to be the end of the road was divorce. Because I knew nothing else. And that's not to push shame or guilt or blast anyone. It's just a matter of fact. It's a matter of the state of the fallen world that we all live in. And Britt and I had to have honest conversations. Apart from Jesus, this thing is going to be a train wreck. And even with Jesus, some days it's kind of like, you know, a train wreck. Divorce is not God's creative intent, it should only happen as Christians in the most rare and extenuating of circumstances. And obviously I'm not going to parse out all of those circumstances here today. It's well beyond the scope, and I'm not sure that every situation can be parsed out. But suffice it to say that Jesus says one thing for certain: that divorce should not happen just as still it often happens today, for whatever reason that someone wants. That's Jesus' point. They say, "Well, Moses said we can get divorced for whatever reason. Jesus says, that's not the way it was from the beginning. He says, sometimes there are reasons. He actually makes an allowance there. He says, except for sexual morality, right? And obviously, I, I don't think that that's hyper narrow. I think that it's representative of, there are things and times and places and circumstances in which divorce is allowed, if we're gonna think in those hyper, ruleistic legalistic ways, you know, that some of us really like. But it's not God's intent, It's not his design. It's not his desire. But what happens? How do we get to the place where we divorce someone just because of whatever reason we want? They're like, man, Moses said we could just present a certificate that says whatever we want, and boom, we're clear. We're good with God. And Jesus says, no. You want to know how that happens? Because our hearts get hard, we stop caring. We stop having empathy and compassion. We stop loving others as we love ourselves. Our hearts get hard. Did you know that that was possible? Paul actually said that our conscience can become seared as though with a hot iron. You ever had a really bad burn? You ever looked at a trauma victim and what their skin looks like after burning? It's hard. It's the body's way of protecting itself. Our hearts do the same things. Jesus said, this is what leads to this kind of thing. But you know, I know that some of us in here have experienced divorce. Perhaps we were even Christians when it happened. I'm not wanting to cast shame or disgrace on anyone. That is not the point here. But rather, to point us towards God, who is this loving, heavenly Father and calls us to have soft hearts. And for some, at times, it means we have to repent and work the ground of our hard heart to help bring it soft again. You know, I'm so proud of so many in this church that have endured great toil, heartache, and agony in order to not separate what God has joined together. It's not easy, and I get a front row seat to a lot of it, and it is a lot, but I'm grateful to God When people decide to submit to the creator's intent rather than trying to be their own creator. It's God glorifying. It's not easy. And it takes all of us, right? We're all in there with each other. That's what God's creative intent is, is that his body would be a family that helps one another even through the heartache, the sin, the wrongdoing. And I'm so proud of so many that I've come across that have inspired me to keep submitting, right? Because there are plenty of days that my wife's like, I don't know, God, could I got a better one. I always joke that, you know, I mean, it's half joking. This is going to give you guys an insight into my morbid self. But I always joke that, you know, if I pass suddenly or something happens to me, you know, Britt's going to, like, she'll have it made. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? She'll have it made. She's a great woman. She's got great kids. She's going to find some suitor, right? I said, if she goes, though, we will have some problems around here, okay? I said, Brittany, now, you can, I'm not going to find another person that I could get to, you know, put up with me. And she's always very sympathetic. And no, 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 <laughs> no, that's not true, honey. Hey, but you know what, though? God blinded her for just long enough, and I'm happy and content with that. So, But it really is inspiring to see people who submit themselves to the Creator's intent, even though it's hard, because they believe in this Creator God. But sometimes we do fall into this trap and this lie of Satan, where we buy into this idea. Oh, Brittany just came back in. Okay, don't tell her what I said, okay? (laughs) We do buy into this idea that's very culturally popular too, that we deserve to be happy. You deserve fill in the blank. You know what the Bible's narrative is on that? Since you and I ate that fruit, you know what we deserve? Condemnation. Eternal separation from this loving. Like, what? I can just hear the competing worldview now. What you mean I deserve? No, 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 I deserve This is inherently a part of the lie. And I want to be emphatic. It's not just the culture, right? This isn't just some external thing. It's not just the serpent in the garden. Guess who else was there? Eve. Guess who else was there? Adam. There's stuff in us. It's internal too, right? We want to buy this lie that we deserve something. So often this worldview, this ideology, this truth is used to justify divorce. Well, I deserve to be happy. I deserve to not be treated like. And again, okay, hang with me. Allow me me the nuance that yes, okay, obviously there are extenuating circumstances. At times I believe divorce is the lesser of all evils, but it's not God's creative intent. But Jesus says our hearts can become hard We can decide that we're gonna give up on what God has joined together because I deserve X, Y, and Z. The blood of Jesus was shed for us. What do we deserve beyond that? But yet we wanna buy this lie. I know that there are individual cases and circumstances. I read something one time in in a text about preaching. He said, the good sermon was qualified to death. That's how I feel right now. I'm standing on the edge of a cliff and I'm qualifying to death not to offend someone. Qualifying to death what I don't mean and what I'm not trying to say, that it actually blunts the teachings of Jesus. Jesus' teachings were so unqualified, his disciples were like, What? It's better to not even get married. Let's move on to singleness then. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This, I believe, is also a very challenging teaching of Paul here currently in the letter to the Corinthians, but it is in line with what Jesus says too. Because at the very end of that passage in Matthew 19, what does Jesus say in response to his disciples' bewilderment? When they say, It's better not to get married, what does Jesus say? Oh, no, 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 guys. Marriage is God's creative intent in the garden. That's not the way to do it. Get married. What does he say? You're darn right. Whew. You talk about a countercultural message. He says it's better to not even marry. And Jesus is like, mm, yeah, yeah. That's hard, y'all. <laughs> that's hard. I spent 10 years as a single person following Jesus. And 23 before that, (laughs) living like a heathen, living in the other world view. But for those 10 years that I lived single as a Christian, some of those years, most of them actually were actually as a minister. I was in the ministry. I really wrestled with Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7. Let me explain what a eunuch is for those of you that don't know. Jesus said, some are made eunuchs by birth, some are made eunuchs by men, and some make themselves eunuchs or live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. A eunuch in ancient times in Jesus' context was a male who had been castrated. So his testicles had been removed so that he could no longer impregnate a woman. This was a ploy that was often used in royal courts. So when you would have a royal woman, a queen or a princess, someone of royal line, they needed men around them to serve them and protect them but they can't risk impregnating them and breaking the royal line. So they would castrate men often in childhood and they would grow up as eunuchs. They would grow up as men in the royal court who could not defile or subjugate the royal family. It was a very common practice in Jesus' day. He says, guess what? Some people have reproductive issues by birth, right? Some people are made eunuchs by other people such as in the case of, you know, those in the royal court, which is also what happens in Acts 8, right? The Ethiopian eunuch who served under the queen of Kandache, right? This is his situation in life. He was made a eunuch as a boy, most likely. And then he says, some choose to live like that. Meaning what? Celibacy. Complete abstinence. For what? Why? For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Man, and then Paul picks up this theme in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25. Now, about virgins. So, obviously, there's a context here that I'm not reading before it about marriage. You can go read that. He says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy talk about qualifying a sermon to death, right? Paul, thanks for that. <laughs> he says, guys, listen, this isn't from God, but, but I think I'm trustworthy to speak for God. Well, so which one is it, Paul? You know, come on, is this binding or not? Anyways, but because of the present crisis, we don't have all the insight into what that crisis was, but it had something to do with probably sexual immorality and people wanting to get married. He says, I think It is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Meaning, pledged to a woman, meaning, you know, engaged. Or you guys are going to be married, but not married yet. He says, do not seek to be released from that marriage. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Wow, okay, thanks, Paul. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. On the whole page, I kid you not, that's the one verse that I have underlined. I don't know what I was thinking at the time. I don't know why I underlined it. I haven't had this Bible that long, but that's the one that's underlined, and it wasn't just for the sermon, I promise. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs. How he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. How he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world. How she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you. But that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. Did you know the right way to live is in undivided devotion to the Lord? If anyone is worried that he may not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning, they should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does what's right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord." In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is and I think that I too have the spirit of God. So one of the questions that came out earlier was, is it okay to date and marry a non-Christian? I think this passage settles that pretty cleanly. It seems pretty explicit, black and white. No believer is to ever marry an unbeliever. Okay? Now, sometimes there are believers that are married to unbelievers and Paul writes about this because they became believers once they were already married and he says in that case don't divorce okay because again divorce is not God's creative intent but if you are a believer and you get married it should always be to another believer that is God's intent and yes God is gracious and he works for the good and he can turn messes into messages and all of those things but it's not God's design And it's not his intent for us. And it will go better for us if we obey and surrender to his creative intent. You know, I think I want to speak to the single people for just a moment. Because there is, and I think has been, this kind of dynamic and environment that single people are often considered, treated as, or consider themselves to be somehow lesser than in the kingdom of God. Somehow second-class citizens not quite arrived yet. Hey, sis. When are you going to get married, you know? Do you need some dates? Can I help you find someone? Like, there's this culture of us always trying to get people to that status. Why? So we can have married on our Facebook profile? Like, what exactly is the purpose of that? This is the thing. The Bible, Jesus and Paul, who Paul says, not from the Lord, but I believe I have the Spirit. I'll kind of let you judge what kind of authority this has. But both of them say, singleness is better I don't know about y'all, but I had 10 years. I had to wrestle with that. And then all y'all are like, wait, but you still got married? (laughs) Yes, Lord, I could not accept this word. (laughs) But I did wrestle with it. And that's what we're supposed to do. Not everyone's going to be given that word. Not everyone is going to embrace the life of a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. But you should darn well consider it. And for those that do, you are living a better, more devoted life to Jesus. That's what the scriptures teach. That you can be undivided in your devotion. Single people, does that characterize your life? That you live in undivided devotion? Or do you live in divided devotion because you're really just trying to get married? Because you're not really content in your singleness. This was the real turning stone for me. Is that for the first several years of being a Christian, I was not really content in my singleness. I really wanted to be married. And so God took me on this journey with the help of other people around me, and I started really wrestling with me. Why did I want to get married? Sex is very good, God created it that way. So that was a factor. I was lonely. That was a factor. I wanted to share my life, victories and failures with someone. That was a factor. But at the end of the day, I did not truly believe that by being single, I was actually able to be more devoted to the Lord in a way that was content. I wasn't happy with being undivided. And so I really wrestled with this, and it was a span of probably a few years, and I Dated different Christian women and trying to find someone and no one would take me, but it didn't work out. And finally, I ended up going like, this is not working. Maybe I'm trying to hit my head against a wall. God, are you trying to tell me something? And then all of a sudden, I started coming across these passages, wrestling with these concepts, had some older, mature men in my life helping me with this, going, John, have you really considered, seriously, considered? What if God wants you to be single for the rest of your life so that you can be singularly devoted to him? And I was like, whoa, okay, hold on now. (laughs) I feel like Jesus' disciples. Like, this is the hard teaching. Who can accept this? But you know what? God moved and softened my heart, and I got to a place where I really did feel and believe and exist in a consistent way, content with God and I flourished spiritually. I impacted a lot of people in that season in my life. I traveled around, I was, a tra- I was literally a traveling evangelist. It was an amazing time. And wouldn't you know it, that in that place of contentment, in that place, God brought along a woman in my life. And I say, God, I'm content either way, but I believe you've made me probably operate the best with a partner because of my own failings shortcomings particular sin you know issues etc god i want you to lead that was very different than prior where it was really like god God, appreciate you i'm following jesus but i got this i need this i want this it was me being the creator It was me defining my own reality. It was me defining what was true for me rather than allowing God to define it. Single people, would you allow God to define it for you? And would you be willing to let him define it however he wants to define it? This is what I wanna encourage single people to do. And for us that are married, we need to support and champion that very effort in our single people. That we would lift them up encourage them, honor them as they are striving to be singularly devoted to the Lord. And not that they're just, oh, great, free babysitting. Oh, cool, they can get to the church early to set up all the stuff. Have you noticed the ratio of people that get here early that are single versus married? I think that that's how it should be. One, because they can be singularly devoted, but... I think that the rest of us that are not single need to highly appreciate and honor that and not just expect it, right? And we all have our versions of that, right? Whatever it might be, that we would honor each other in whatever stage of life that we're in as we are trying to honor God. I have completely obliterated the time on this sermon. So I'm going to, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna, I got like half a sermon left. I'm gonna save it for next week maybe and bump off the timeline I don't know. We'll see. The last thing I want to say about singleness is that the culture that we live in is swept up in romance and that that is somehow the highest value of life. That, you know, all the rom-coms, what, what do they do? They highlight and value and they, they pedestal the idea of, of romantic love, right? And obviously, God made that. God made man and woman that they should enjoy one another. He made them one flesh. That's a good thing. He calls it very good. It's a good thing. But if we don't do it God's way, it's not so good. It's not so good. So the singleness that Paul talks about here is not a singleness by status. It's not just you're not married, it's a singleness of mind and heart that we're singularly devoted and we're content in that singularity of devotion and worship. You know, if we don't embrace this as single people, as disciples, we end up leading these lives that are ultimately selfish, trying to still supply what we think we need rather than allowing God to be the one that fills us and the only one we need. It's not easy, I know. I did it for many, many years. And married people in their own way still have to do it as well. Because any married person in here will tell you, single person, that all your problems don't go away when you get married. And in some ways, they actually multiply. They compound, which is why Paul said, I'm trying to spare you from this. There are a lot of headaches a lot of problems, a lot of difficulties that Brit and I have now being married that we didn't have when we were single. I know that you guys want me to get up here and sunshine it to death and flower it up and rainbows and sparkles. and It is really good, okay? There are lots of good things. I love being married, but it comes with its own sets of challenges. And so we need to be sober-minded about this. Consider Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 7. You know, unfortunately, when we live this life of selfishness, when we're seeking, whether out in the world apart from Jesus or even in the church, when we're just seeking what we want, that well dries up quickly. We have to keep going back to it, keep searching, keep looking. Why? Because nothing ultimately fills our contentment other than Jesus himself. He wants to give us living water in which we never have to come back to the well to find some lesser version of that. And this is the life that I lived before I was a disciple. I kept going back to these wells of sexual immorality, hedonism, drinking, drugs, I kept going back to these wells, looking for contentment, looking for meaning, looking for validation, and I would feel it for a while and have to go right back to that well again because it dries up. I even murdered an unborn baby in the womb of a woman so that I could live the selfish life that I decided was right and wrong. And I thank God every day for grace and an opportunity to repent I don't live in the shadows of those things, but I do want to live soberly, to know who we are, to know who I am, apart from God, apart from allowing Him to be the Creator and to be my contentment. As we continue to go through this series on what it means to truly follow Jesus, I want us to be able to expose and recognize the hollow, shallow lies of Christianity that many of us have been fed. It's not about coming to church. It's not about having a get out of hell free card in my back pocket because I said a prayer. It's about following a man who turned life upside down, who said it's better to be single. (laughs) I'm like, you might not have a more controversial message than that today, unless it's the singleness of selfishness. You know, more and more of our population is becoming single, why? because our hearts are hard. People aren't becoming single to be singularly devoted to the kingdom of God. To becoming single so that they can express their selfishness even more. This is what Jesus asks us to stand up against, to show another way, to be a light, a city on a hill, to be able to show people that we can be single and devoted, that we can be married, And we can love one another as we love ourselves and not just throw things away because I deserve. I'll talk about purity in another sermon. God is the creator. He's the definer of what's good and true. He's the definer of gender, of sexuality, of marriage, of singleness. God gives marriage and singleness both as gifts to people. However, Singleness and marriage is not for our personal happiness. It is primarily for our holiness. I love that language that I heard John Piper say first. God did not create marriage for your personal happiness, but for your holiness. Jesus says plainly, there'll be no marriage in heaven. These marriage bonds aren't eternal. Their purpose is not just for our personal happiness, but for our holiness that we can share with God eternally. That also is a controversial message. And whether we're single or married, if we're gonna follow Jesus and be a Christian, God calls us to a life of sexual purity. I didn't have time to go into that today. Maybe I will another time. But suffice it to say, God's intent is that we live life in the parameters of sexuality that he defines as good. And if we're honest with ourselves, any times we deviate from that, it's to our own detriment, to our own destruction. God loves us and wants us to experience the very good life that he created. Let's pray.